0: Hello and welcome to part two of the Christmas campfire for 2021. It's a little bit later than I had planned. I um, ended up spending a little bit more time with my family than we sort of planned for. But um, yeah, it was nice. Had a nice time. I hope you had a lovely Christmas and New Year. And whilst I can sort of still just about get away with saying it, Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to podcasting for another year, hopefully In your company. So yeah, Happy New Year to you. With that said, we're in part two of the Christmas campfire. We've still got lots of stories to go. So let's just jump straight in with the first story from Tony. Going back to the 80s, I was a Met police officer working for what was then the Diplomatic Protection Group. I was an armed police officer and we were tasked in guarding VIPs, government buildings and diplomats. I was working nights on the day in question and I was posted to the residence of a government minister whose house was not very far from Buckingham Palace. It was about 2am and I was inside the main house and decided to take a walk around the perimeter of the building to check its security. At the time in question, we were on a heightened state of alert. The IRA were planting bombs in the capital along with the Middle Eastern terrorists. The area in question is very atmospheric was gaslit and was used for filming TV and movie costume dramas, Sherlock Holmes and the like. I opened a heavy front door and was somewhat surprised to see a young boy standing just back from the doorstep. He was about 10 to 12 years old, well dressed in a baker's boy flat cap, a pullover that buttoned at the shoulder, corduroy knickerbocker trousers, long woolen socks and boots and he was holding in his hands a full sized dark brown leather football. I said to him, hello mate, what are you doing here? He didn't say anything and just smiled. He then started to bounce the football. It was at this point, I realised that as the football struck the tarmac surface in the front of the premises, it made no sound. I then saw a lady standing about 10 yards behind the boy. She was about 30 years of age and was wearing what I can describe as Edwardian dress. She wore her long hair pinned up and she wore a straw hat decorated with wax fruit. She wore a long grey dress that had a leg of mutton sleeves. I saw her mouth move and she indicated with her hand for the boy to come to her. The boy smiled at me again, waved goodbye and turned and ran towards the lady. As he reached her, she held out her hand. The boy took it and then they vanished. I don't know what happened that night. Was it a time slip or ghosts? I don't know. I immediately asked my control by radio for a time check, which, upon receiving it, I confirmed it with my watch. So I definitely wasn't dreaming. And that was Tony's story. I I like to kind of think that sounds a bit like a time slip or something, because time slips are great. I'm I'm very much in for stories of time slips. Um, And I think sometimes they can be even more intriguing than ghosts. And somehow, they I feel like they're slightly less scary for the experiencer, but I'm not sure if that's the case. I'm not sure if I experienced a time slip, I'd be any less scared than if I saw a ghost. But I feel like, in a way, like, the time slip, I don't know, I think because the entire atmosphere of a place changes and you get, you know, you're... You, it, it, it's, it's almost, it's somehow less personal in a way or, or less kind of um, sort of focused upon like, you and that one other entity. Um, but like I say, I would probably still absolutely break my pants. But yeah, no, great story. So thanks very much. The next one comes from John who said, when I was in my late 20s, I lived in this old house on a street called Ebenezer Terrace in Dublin. And to set the geography straight, that's the capital of Ireland, <laughs> which is good that, yeah, good that you set that straight. Now, this old house had a bit of a peculiar history. The infamous and nowadays subterranean river puddle flowed right below the back garden, and this garden contained a wooden shed in which a brand new tenant once found a single live kitten locked inside. Unfortunately, at the time, it was buried under a pile of other kittens, all dead for goodness knows how long. But this kitten then grew up to be a cat in the house, and throughout its nine lives, it watched the various occupants come and go. At the height of the Troubles in the 1970s, some freshly released Irish political prisoners had their coming home party on the roof, and British politician Jeremy Corbyn once attended a party there also in the 70s. Whether it was the same party, I'm not too sure. We knew all this because the stepfather of one of my housemates had actually owned the house for the last few decades, and passed on all the stories incrementally over the years. It was during my time in this dead, cat-infested party house that I began to suffer from intense sleep paralysis and the hallucinations that came with it. I'm guessing it was the heavy drinking that caused them, but I don't know that at the time. Otherwise, I might have tried to tone the boozing down, because being petrified beyond belief by sinister, shadowy figures creeping around my bedroom Brandishing long curved knives and of cold black hands with long slithery digits grabbing at my feet trying to pull me down into an endless dark abyss was not, nor ever has been, my idea of a decent night's sleep. These went on for months, but then one night things took a strange turn. No doubt after passing out in my bed after another alcohol fueled session, I woke up in that all-too-familiar incapacitated state. If you've never had sleep paralysis before, then it's difficult for me to describe what your mind and body is going through. You're not fully conscious, but you're aware that you can't move a muscle or scream out in sheer terror. The body's ability to move is locked thanks to neurotransmitters that prevent us from acting out our dreams physically, but yet the eyes remain open while the mind still dreams. I lay there awaiting the inevitable ominous characters to once again intrude upon the once safe space of my generously sized bedroom, as a tall, thin girl dressed in a white gown with thick black hair covering most of her face materialised by my bedside and began to stare at me. Little segments of her eyes were visible through the strands of her mottled hair. She stood there motionless for a few seconds, not saying a word, looking like something out of a Japanese horror film, whilst I thought to myself, here we go again. Then, suddenly she began to speak in a startlingly normal and somewhat friendly voice. Hey, yeah. what's your name? I lay there in shock, trying to decide on whether it was some sort of cruel trick or not, but since I literally couldn't go anywhere, I hesitated and he answered. Um, John? She gave a little smile and continued. Well, John, I really like your bedroom. I like all the posters on the wall and the artwork you have lying around. It's really cool. I took this as a big compliment, so I replied, Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much in a now more accepting tone. Over the next few minutes, she began to ask me more trivial questions like what movies I liked, what bands I listened to and it got to a point where it almost felt like a first date. Her appearance gradually began to look more human and less the grotesque horror cliché she started off as. She was talking so much I couldn't even get a chance to ask her about herself and the fact that my body was still frozen didn't help my sociability. I was just starting to really warm to her before she told me, I have to leave now, John, but it was really nice talking to you. Maybe I'll see you again sometime. I felt disappointed. Yeah, it was really nice meeting you. What was your name, by the way? I inquired, and actually contemplated following up by asking for her phone number. It's Rosa, she said with a smile, and then she took a few steps back and seemed to dissolve into the air. It felt like when you're having a nice dream about kissing a girl but she disappears just before your lips can meet and then it was over, just like that. I fell straight back into a dreamless sleep. As per usual, I woke up the next morning and completely forgot about this encounter. That is, until a few days later when I was watching a horror film on TV with my housemate which sparked my memory. Oh, I have forgot to tell you, I had this weird sleep paralysis dream the other night. And then I went on to tell the entire story, making sure I left out her name because I knew his stepdad would be familiar with past tenants and I didn't want to give it away just yet. So do you know if any girl that's kind of slim with long black hair that maybe used to live here is in the house at any stage? I asked to him. He answered immediately, well, my stepdad's daughter lived here for a while in the 90s and she definitely fits that description. What was her name? Rosa. My heart dropped. I couldn't believe it. Are you kidding me? The fucking ghost girl in my room told me her name was Rosa honestly man. No way. I was very excited at this point and I confessed a little part of me was almost hoping he'd say she was dead. Is she still around? Like is she still alive? He paused and looked at me for a few seconds. Yeah she is sorry about that. (laughs) She lives in London now. I was certainly glad she was still alive but I must admit my dreamy hallucination would have been a hell of a lot more interesting if she had passed on. But then it got me thinking, maybe somehow her spirit was somehow still alive and in the house. Perhaps she had slept in the same bedroom as me, and left a part of her being behind. Not to haunt, but to welcome. The sleep paralysis hallucinations do still happen occasionally, but nowhere near to the same degree of intensity as they did back in that house. No ominous entity has ever appeared over my head since then, and wanted to chat about common interests. But if Rosa ever wants to visit again, I'd love to tell her about the new bands I've been listening to. That was a cool story about, well, whatever you experienced, and also sleep paralysis, which is another quite like, fascinating subject. Um, but it's interesting how that's, that story is, um, it's almost quite, you know, it's a, well, it is a positive spin on that typical being terrified in your bedroom in the middle of the night thing, Um but yeah, the sleep paralysis side of it is is really interesting. I, I've suffered sleep paralysis, I think, um, on three occasions in my life. Well, I had like a bout of suffering sleep paralysis um, that I actually ended up having to go to the doctors for because I, I thought I was going mad. And I, I thought I was I, I literally thought I was it got to that point where I felt like I was just losing my grip on reality because every night I'd go to sleep and and this this was quite weird i slept on a futon at the time it was back when i was i was just after a student and i was living in a shared house and i had this futon that was just like on laid on the floor so you're really low on the on the ground and uh every night i'd i'd see these like cloaked figures standing all around the edge of the futon just staring and because i was so low down they were like standing like well over me and they were all just staring down at me i couldn't see their faces um and they looked just like those things from Lord of the Rings. I can't, I, I'm not like a massive Lord of the Rings fan, so I can't remember, but they looked like the, the, those creepy ring-wraith things, I think they were called, um, in Lord of the Rings. They, they looked just like that. I mean, it's probably where I got the image from um, in the first place, to be honest. And, uh, yeah, it happened every night for about a couple of weeks, and I was going mad. And I went to the doctors, um, you know, and I was, I was kind of, like, worried at the time. And my sister came with me because I was like, yes, well, I was quite worried about it. I felt like I was kind of starting to lose grip on reality or something. And uh, I spoke to the doctor and he just kind of blank faced, just sort of stared at me and was like, well, well, yeah. And then what happened? And I said to him, oh, you know, well, I just fall asleep. And he was like, well, do you not think you already are asleep? And as soon as he said it, it kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. And it it totally cleared everything up. And they never came back after that. It was so... I guess it must have happened once, and the anxiety must have just kind of stirred it on to continue it happening. And as soon as it became clear of what it was, um, it all just went away. So that that was, but that used to terrify me quite a lot. And 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 since then, it's happened a few times in, in like um, just over the last year, actually. Um, but although every time it's happened because I was listening to an audio book and falling asleep to an audio book, and so I think I was in that, like the audiobook was engaging enough to keep me awake, despite the fact that I was falling asleep, if you like. So I think it sort of pushed me into that middle stage of sort of sleep paralysis where you're half asleep and half awake. And uh, they were always just the classic kind of, I woke up with something standing over the bed. Um, the first time, like it was standing over the bed and reaching towards my throat. And I was it's like, I remember just being like, ah, like, like really trying to scream and I just couldn't get it out. And then eventually I kind of went, ah, and just woke myself up Um, and then instantly felt really silly for like, you know, sort of screaming at the top of my voice um, at like three o'clock in the morning or something. Um, But yeah, no, definitely. Anyway, long stories, short um, sleep paralysis, really terrifying. Yeah. Um, Anyway, enough of my waffling. Let's uh, crack on. Next story is from Jane uh, from Australia, which is cool because... It's always nice to be international, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, no, Jane says, I live in Tasmania, Australia, which is a pretty gothic, ghostly place due to all the colonial brutality towards convicts and First Peoples. A few years ago, I was doing my face-to-face final exam to qualify as a GP and staying in a hotel in Launceston. I think it's Launcheston. I was staying in a hotel in Launceston that had been developed from a convent Two nun cells had been knocked together to form each room. I was a little tense due to exam stress. I hopped into the bed, turned out the light, and said to my husband, Well, at least there are no creepy nun ghosts in here. As soon as I said it, the light turns back on by itself. I aced the exam, despite being too terrified to sleep. More recently, we moved into a beautiful 1897 house in Hobart. I was upstairs sewing my 20-month-old daughter no one else in the house about 2pm. She looks to the other end of the room and says, Who dat there, Mummy? Who dat? I shakily say, There's no one there, darling. No, that person there, who dat? Then she loses interest. I slowly recover my heart rate, and no further creepy things in the house for a few years, but our dog is not keen on that room. My parents stayed over and slept in that room. Dad had a nightmare and he flailed around, As he does occasionally, and my mum hits him awake and he was worried that he'd hurt her. Apparently, there was a young woman with a long dress and a veil covering her hair standing on my mum's side of the bed, saying, It's all right, Peter, it's all right. Then, just last week, he woke up in the night and went to the toilet and he saw a large vase of yellow flowers in the middle of the room, moving slowly to the door. He doesn't believe in ghosts and he's not suggestible, and neither am I. I suppose on the bright side, there doesn't seem to be any malign presence. That's really weird. I've definitely had a thing with the animals. Like like the, my dog is definitely... Like how hey, you said your dog's not keen on that room. I've definitely had that thing where my dog and even my cat for years just suddenly perks up and starts staring down my hallway. So I live in like an apartment. It's like a one-bed apartment. It's got like a lounge and a bedroom and a kitchen. And then there's like a hallway that connects them mall, but the kitchen's at the far end so it's it's kind of longer than it is square if you like so this hallway just goes right down to the far end of the flat and it's quite long and dark if you know and during the night there's no lights on and my cat and dog both sit there and stare down that hallway at times and it's just really freaks you out doesn't it when your animal does that like my dog well I've said like both of them really but the dog more so because the cat you know you call the cat and she ignores you anyway because it's a cat right like but my dog you know if I call the dog generally speaking if he, even if he doesn't come to me he'll turn and look at me but, but sometimes you can see his attention is really captivated on something down this long dark hallway and I, I live yeah I live by myself so it can be you know it's like oh god when I see it, it just makes me like it always makes me feel somewhat uneasy. But anyway, getting back to your story, I thought it's really interesting you saying about um, you know the yellow flowers in the middle of the room. Were they? What well, I don't get from the, the story, and I'm I'm not sure, it's probably implied, and I'm probably being a bit dense. But were the flowers um, like an apparition, or, or or were they in the room already and they were just move in? um Which is no less creepy, you know. If, you, if flowers were like levitating across the floor or whatever, it's no less weird. But yeah, that, that 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 was what strung to my mind because it was an apparition. That, that's, that's even more weird and, and definitely sort of feels almost like the, the 1930s spiritualists and stuff. That's the sort of things that they used to sort of see and do. But anyway, thanks very much for your story. Next one is from Sarah. And Sarah wrote, I lived in a house in rural North Carolina from 2013 to 2018. The main part of the house was built in the early 1950s, with two additions added in the 70s and the 80s. Many strange things happened in this house over the years that I lived there. When I first moved in, my then-boyfriend and a friend moved in with me as roommates. I'll call my boyfriend Shane and my roommate Marcy. Strange things started to occur about a week after we were settled into the house. I'm a bit of a paranoid person, so I'm very particular about doors and windows being locked, especially at night. One morning I woke up to go to work to find the back door wide open. My boyfriend Shane had left about an hour before this and the house was rather draughty. I assumed that he'd not closed the door all the way and the wind had opened the door back up. I sent him an angry text message reminding him to make sure to close and lock the door whenever he left. He replied saying that he knew for a fact that he had not only closed the door but deadlocked it before he left. We had a brief argument about it but eventually I let it go. The door, seeming to have opened itself, made me anxious, and I remember checking and rechecking multiple times that night that I had indeed locked the doorknob and deadbolted the door. The next day, I didn't have to go to work and looked forward to sleeping in. Shane abruptly woke me up early, which irritated me until I realised how panicked he seemed. He dragged me out of the bed and into the kitchen, where the back door stood wide open again. We were both bewildered and frightened. My roommate had gone to visit her family the day before, and no one outside of the three of us who lived there had keys to the house. Shane left for work after assuring me that it had to have been one of us sleepwalking or something. I didn't feel satisfied with that explanation, but again, I, I let it go. Finding the door wide open became a weekly occurrence for us over the next few weeks. One day, when I woke up feeling a little irritated and found the door open as I left for work, I said loudly in an annoyed tone, Will who, or whatever keeps opening the door, Please just stop. I'm concerned for our safety. None of us ever found the door mysteriously open again. Another strange thing happened during this same time period of the seemingly self-opening door. I noticed whenever I was alone in the house, I'd hear what sounded like a radio or TV left on in the area of the house I wasn't currently in. For example, if I were in the back of the house in the master bedroom, it sounded as if a radio or TV were playing in the front of the house near the kitchen despite there being no radio or TV in that part of the house. The sounds were always people talking, as if the news were being reported or an interview were taking place, not music. When I would go into the kitchen to investigate, the sounds would suddenly seem to be coming from a part of the house that I'd just left. I thought myself a little crazy and wrote it up to hearing things, and I didn't mention this occurrence, which happened a few times over a period of several weeks, to anyone. One day... My roommate Marcy and I were folding laundry together and chatting as roommates do. Marcy casually said to me, you know, the weirdest thing happened to me the other day. I was doing homework in my bedroom while you and Shane were out for dinner and I could swear I heard a radio or something playing in the kitchen. And when I went in there, it sounded like the noise was coming from your bedroom. So I went in there. Then it was like it was coming from the living room or kitchen again. It was super weird. I had told her that I'd experienced the same thing and called my boyfriend to ask if he had He told me that he'd indeed experienced the same thing but didn't want to tell me because I'd been so freaked out by the door opening itself. Interestingly, my brother and sister-in-law now live in the house and my sister-in-law told me that she had heard the same radio or TV light sound whenever she was alone in the house. No one ever heard this noise while someone else was there in the house with them. Another strange occurrence happened regarding a photograph of me. I had two pictures of myself in a single frame one of me as a baby and another of my senior picture. These photos hung above a dresser in the master bedroom along with two other frame photos. I noticed one day that the frame and pictures had disappeared. Sometimes my cats would knock down the frames when they jumped up on the dresser so I looked behind and underneath the dresser expecting them to be there but they weren't. I looked all over my bedroom and could not find the frame or photos anywhere. I assumed that maybe Shane or Marcy were playing a practical joke on me when I asked them about it, they both swore they hadn't done anything with the frame or the photos. About three weeks later, I was in the master bedroom, which had an attached bathroom, cleaning. I'd just made the bed and finished up in the bedroom, so I moved on to clean the bathroom. Twenty or so minutes later, I came out of the bathroom. To my surprise and confusion, I found my senior picture, not the frame or other photograph that had been framed with my senior picture, on the edge of my just-made-up bed. No one else was in the house when this happened. I never found the frame or the photo of me as a baby. Nothing strange happened in the house for about a year after my lost photograph suddenly reappeared. Around Christmas, approximately 14 months after the photo incident, Shane and I had returned from a party. Shane had worked that day and then met at the party, so when we got home we wanted to shower. I went into the living room and closed the door. Our cats had a tendency to try to climb into our Christmas tree so we always locked the cats out of the living room where the tree stood. For clarity, to get from the living room to the bathroom where Shane was showering, one would have to walk down a hallway that had a linen closet. This closet didn't have any doors, so a curtain hung in the doorway. For about 20 minutes, I sat alone in the living room while Shane showered. Then, I heard him talking to someone in the hallway, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I assumed he was on the phone until he opened the living room door and said, ''You're very funny.'' In a somewhat amused, somewhat annoyed tone before closing the door. I was confused as I had no idea what he was talking about. A few minutes later, he came into the living room, shook his head at me and sat down. I asked him why he called me funny and he said, ''You scared me. In the hallway. I almost punched you.'' I looked at him with what must have been a perplexed expression, prompting him to say, ''Stop kidding around. You jumped out of the closet at me in the hallway.'' I assured him that I had not left the living room since we had returned from the party. Apparently, as Shane walked down the hallway, he saw a woman about my build and with similar long black hair jump out at him and say, "Da" from behind the curtain that hung in front of the closet in the hallway. When I finally convinced him that I had not left the living room since we had returned home, he became very upset. That incident probably bothered him more than any other strange thing that happened in the house on Main Street. About six months after this Shane and I adopted a dog. The dog who we named Tessa was older and very docile. She didn't bark wasn't really interested in playing with toys and in general had a very laid-back and calm disposition. One night Shane and I were in bed chatting before we ultimately planned to go to sleep. We had our bedroom door open meaning we could easily see into the hallway that led to the rest of the house and Tessa lay at the foot of the bed Tessa suddenly jumped up and started aggressively growling and baring her teeth towards the hallway as if someone were trying to come into our bedroom. Absolutely nothing was there, as both our cats were also in the bedroom with us and our roommate had moved out months earlier. Tessa never displayed that kind of behaviour, even when meeting new people. She continued to growl for several minutes before eventually settling back down into the bed where she looked back and forth between us and the hallway while whining for about ten minutes. One last story that involves Tessa. Shane and I threw a party to celebrate my graduation from college. During this party, a friend of ours had a pretty severe panic attack and this friend and I ended up in a bedroom that functioned as a guest room. The foot of the bed was close to the door to his bedroom and I had the door closed for privacy as I tried to help my friend calm down. After about 10 minutes, I managed to calm him down and we were sitting on the foot of the bed talking. I was joking around with her in an attempt to help her feel better. She was embarrassed that she'd had a panic attack in front of her other party guests. Tessa, who was a very empathetic dog, had been quietly whining outside the door, wanting to come in to comfort my friend. We were ignoring her and continuing our conversation. Tessa whined and whined, but we didn't let her in. Then, my friend and I both saw the doorknob turn and the door open. Tessa came in, happy to be admitted into the room, but there was no one outside the door. We both assumed someone may have opened the door while walking by the bedroom to go down the hallway into the bathroom, but everyone at the party denied being anywhere near the door. I moved out of the house a few months after this happened. I've no explanation for any of the strange occurrences in that house, and to this day my brother and sister-in-law still experience weird things there. I've always believed in the possibility of supernatural occurrences, but living in the house on Mainstream cemented it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Like that sounds like a proper haunted house. I, I would, I say I'd love to live there. I probably wouldn't. I'd be terrified. But when you read the stories, it's like, oh, I would love to live somewhere like that. Sounds amazing. Sounds terrifying. Again, with the dog and the hallway, and why they do that, I have no idea. Like why do I think they know in their heart of hearts that I think they're just having a game. I think they just sit there and they think, ah, oh, he looks peaceful. Well she looks peaceful. I'm just gonna sit here and stare down the hallway now and growl and bark at it until they freak out. I'm fairly sure that's their plan. But um it's i I know that feeling. It I said the rest of your story was pretty crazy, but and I, and I can't really relate, but and and I definitely know the feeling of being freaked out by the dog. And it's yeah, pretty unnerving. Next story comes from Arlo. And Arlo says, I'm no writer, so I won't be upset if this is too rambly and long to read out, but I did live in a haunted house, so I thought it might be of interest. Absolutely. Uh, While I don't believe in ghosts or demons, and I've found a rational, natural cause which seems to explain at least some of these events, that's boring, so here it is, as experienced at the time. When I was about 13, my family, mum, dad, two younger brothers, myself, and our menagerie of pets, moved into a bog-standard terrace house in Sheffield, There was a framed certificate hanging on a wall at the top of the stairs, stating that an exorcism had been performed on the house. Being a non-religious family, this didn't worry us, just made an excuse for lots of jokes about the place getting repossessed because the priest was too busy lifting weights, running and otherwise exercising, and forgot to pay his mortgage. The back room of the ground floor was originally my parents' bedroom, but a rearrangement soon took place when the windows started to scare them they would suddenly get a strong feeling that something evil in the window, actually inside the glass, was watching them. And it was something unspeakably terrible, worse than anything you can imagine, a demon or something like that. The back room was mostly just used to store things from then on, so no one had to spend more than a minute or two in there. We eventually admitted that we had all experienced the devil in the window, as it was a fairly regular occurrence, in fact. About a year after moving in, I was in the house with my youngest brother, Viv, when someone knocked at the front door very loudly. It made us both jump because the dog usually barks his head off at anyone going into the front garden, including us and people who spent a lot of time at our house, but this time he hadn't made a peep. The only exception the dog usually made was the dandelion man who collected dandelions, dog leaves, etc. from our overgrown garden. We assumed he was a witch or something because the dog never barked at him for some reason. The front door had patterned glass in it, so we couldn't see any detail, but we could see that there was definitely someone there. A white man with dark hair and a white top, who moved about as if he was a bit impatient. But when I opened the door, he was gone. There was nowhere he could have gone quickly enough for us to have missed him. He simply disappeared into thin air. For the next few years, we saw this man wandering about the house, usually in the first floor hallway or on the stairs, wearing all white or all black. We would see him go into a room only to find the room empty. We named him Marty after a ghost in a TV programme I watched at the time. He wasn't scary, just weird. You would look straight at him, but it would seem as if you were seeing him out of the corner of your eye and not be entirely sure whether you'd seen him or not. He never looked at, interacted with or spoke to us as if he wasn't aware we were even there. I saw him slam a door once, but I don't think it was deliberate. My mum was in the room that had its door slam, but hadn't noticed anything even though it was deafeningly loud to me in the hallway. Visitors even saw him. For instance, some electricians had to come put some extra sockets in and when my mum bought them a cup of tea they asked if that was her son who had just left the room. She told them that no one else was in the house at the time so it was probably just Marty. He did look a little bit like my brother Jay and would sometimes be briefly mistaken for him. One night We were all woken up by a sound that could only be a sheet full of Lego being dropped from a great height. My whole family turned up at the door of my room as the Lego was on my floor. But that is where it had been left and our models were on the edges of the sheet and moved. After about four or five years of this, my mum was walking home from the shops one afternoon when she thought she saw Marcy walking out of the front gate and down the hill before vanishing. We never saw him again and never got terrified by the window of the back room either. Family legend goes that Marty wasn't scary because we instinctively knew that he had come to help us by getting rid of the source of all evil, which had decided to set up shop in our back bedroom and left having completed his task. That's really weird. That's a really creepy story, but a really interesting one in that it's equally as creepy despite the fact that, like you say, it it wasn't a malevolent spirit or anything like that. You know, it was uh, some kind of... I suppose benevolent spirit, but um it's still somehow terrifying. you know the fact that he just seemed to ignore you is is somehow worse in a way that would well, that would freak me out anyway but interesting story I'd love to hear um your you know at the start you said you, you, you these days you can kind of rationalize a lot of them away and stuff I'd, I'd love to hear how you come to those kind of conclusions and what those stories are um because like you say as it was, it's definitely interesting. The next story is actually from an anonymous writer who um, didn't want their name read out. So this is from anonymous and they say the following story is one I've been meaning to submit for a couple of years now as it's been something I've never quite been able to set aside in my mind. Whenever I offer it up at a dinner party or down at the pub the reaction from others is to brush it aside as an aberration or perception. It was sleep paralysis, you were hallucinating, you imagined it. As someone with, I think, a healthy degree of scepticism, I'm perfectly prepared to accept that this is a probability. And yet... This event took place when I was about ten, living in New South Wales. I had a friend named Callum, and I would stay the night at his house at any opportunity. I loved it there. The reason for this was simple. It was so totally different from home. It's not to say my own home was a problem, quite the contrary... I lived in a happy house full of sunlight and the smell of clean linen, watched over by perfectly normal and lovely parents. But Callum's house was anything but conventional. I remember it as a dark and slightly damp rabbit warren of brightly painted rooms, filled with strange sculptures and the dense smell of patchouli. His toys were the coolest. A vintage space station playset sticks in my mind as the one that I coveted the most, as I did the lack of rules and constant supply of microwave popcorn supplied by Callum's mum. She was the other reason I liked staying over. She was a true eccentric in every sense of the word. She swore and cackled and did outrageous things that, as an adult, I find a little questionable. But, as a child, I adored her and her outlandish way in which she ran her house. No bedtime, no homework. It was a total kid's paradise. The oddity of the place, however, could not be dismissed or overstated. Even as a kid, I knew that this was a strange house to live in, and was sometimes unnerved by certain aspects of life under that roof. For one, Callum's mother was always very near to us. Not that I minded, of course, as I found her enormously amusing, but she always seemed to be very close at hand, very protective over us, even to the point of being, frankly, a little bit spooky. Case in point... I don't think I can recall her ever sleeping. At night, she would roam around the halls, peeking her head into our bedroom, making sure that we were alright, before drifting off down the hall again. I always knew it was her, as she was recognisable even in the dark, even in silhouette. Wiry, slightly hunched with tightly curled hair and a black satin slip. She drifted in, she checked, she drifted out, many times at night. I woke one night, in the pre-dawn, looking around the room when I noticed her standing over my bed. She was leaning over to look at Callum, but immediately at my right side. I was not alarmed because, again, I could tell it was absolutely her by the distinctive silhouette I'd seen many times before. But this time, she seemed different. Her form was opaquely dark, even in the relative light of the street lamps outside. She moved with a slowness that was almost imperceptible like the minute hand of a watch. I lay there, waiting for her to leave. I closed my eyes to feign sleep, but when I opened them, she was still standing over me, very calm and still. After what felt like several minutes, I decided to sit up and ask her what she was doing. As I did so, I saw her draw back slightly before vanishing. I was absolutely shocked. I held my hand out to feel the space where she had been, but she was gone. I laid awake the rest of the night, wondering what on earth I'd just seen. And on Monday morning at school, I spent the entire lunchtime, and many, many, many lunchtimes after that, scouring books on the paranormal, searching for anything that might explain what I'd encountered that night. Almost 20 years later, after much research, I have a few hypotheses. The first are, as my friends will claim, related to sleep paralysis and hallucination, both of which I've experienced many times as an adult, And still, these do not seem to satisfy my memory of the event. Perhaps the most interesting, if not strictly scientific, theory I've unearthed is related to the phenomenon of astral projection. Essentially, the phenomenon by which a person's consciousness or energy is able to move beyond their physical form during sleep, existing as a living spirit, perhaps not even realising they are doing so. From my research, there are accounts of people who believe that they've experienced astral projection firsthand reporting a strange distortion of time as they moved beyond their sleeping forms. This detail jumped out at me as I recalled the slow, torpid movements of Callum's mother in the eerie pre-dawn hours that night when I was ten. I continue to pursue my personal research into the paranormal and preternatural to this day, always sifting for perhaps another explanation of what may have been there. But to my mind, the explanation is a simple one. Callum's mother awoke in the night Walk down the hall to check on the children, all without ever leaving her bed. Thank you very much for your story. Um, and it, instantly, as you were telling that, I, I was reminded of um, the episode that I did on Emily Sarge, the doppelganger episode. As much as I, I kind of debunked that in that episode, and, and I, I still believe that the story of emily sarge is based on something that could potentially exist or could potentially happen in it and it really sounds sort of like sort of in a way like how you've come to your conclusions um like an astral projection type thing um i, I don't really have any explanations for it and i'm certainly not well enough read to offer any um but but in my mind i sort of think of it as some sort of yeah, like the body is asleep, but the spirit is somehow awake or, or or you know, some kind of energy is being projected, like you say. Um, again, it also reminds me a little bit of the Ben and Dante episode where they were sort of spiritually projecting themselves um, in their sleep, which... Like, kind of like your friends are saying, you know, it's it kind of written off as a hallucination now, and then. There, there is sort of some evidence to suggest that they were rubbing sort of hallucinogenic ointments on their skin and stuff. But um it's really interesting because I say these things, like I, I sort of believe them, but I'm, I'm very sceptical. But I guess I'm in that sort of similar ballpark of you, where, where where you're kind of sceptical and, and healthy, so, and you you try to look for the rational explanation, but. You're always kind of open to that idea that something like that might possibly exist or something, you know, like like, it's very agnostic in a way. Um, But yeah, anyway, I say I'm not sure what it is, but an interesting story anyway. So thanks very much for that. The next story um, comes from somebody called LKT, which I believe, um, if I remember the original email, was um, a, a sort of pen name that they wanted me to use rather than their real name. So we'll leave it at that. And LKT writes a story that he said they've been holding on to since 2002. There are bits in this story that uh, have been... He says that that it was intentionally left out um, because other people were involved and because he was in the army at the time, I think. So, um, yeah, he says basically, like, um, some of the bits of the story have been sort of skimmed over or, or left out. But otherwise, he says, I was 19 and I was a lance corporal in my local county regiment, doing my first tour of Kosovo, six months in Pristina. As a lance corporal, I was second in command of a section of eight guys. We patrolled all across the city in its outskirts, and always had a local person as an interpreter in tow, so if or when we did stop and search, we could communicate with and direct locals. Patrolling around pre-designated sections of the city at all hours, it was not unusual for us to patrol for six to eight hours or so in the rural, less populated parts for an entire night. It was on one of these late night to early morning patrols in a more rural part of the city that this account happened. It was really quite early in our patrol, around 11 o'clockish, ish that we heard this banging and crashing from a two-storey, fully detached house up ahead on the street that we were patrolling. It sounded like a massive fight was going on in there, and as we got closer, we could see through the windows that the lights were on in every room. A woman in her late 40s spotted us through the window and ran out screaming and crying in Albanian. She'd grabbed the nearest one of us to her and was literally hysterical. My section commander ran to them with the interpreter to calm her down and find out what the problem was. We all took a protective stance, as the first thing a soldier thinks is this could be employed to stop a patrol in order to ambush it. After around 5-10 to 10 minutes or so, The section commander and interpreter was able to calm this woman down and get a straight sentence out of her. Personally, I thought that she was being beaten by a husband or a relative, which, unfortunately, wasn't too uncommon. Anyway, it came to light that she claimed to have been alone in the house, and things were just being smashed around her. The section commander walked over to me and told me to take the interpreter and my fire team, a team of me and three other soldiers, in the house to check things were okay. He would set up a perimeter around the house in case this was a ruse. The woman flatly refused to go back into the house. This made us nervous, as it really could be an ambush, and we got to the door and I decided to make our weapons ready. This means to cock them. It's very real that we would routinely patrol with a live weapon due to the risk of accident. I sent the first soldier in, and he shouted as to alert anyone that was in the house that we were going in and to make themselves known or we'll open fire. The interpreter shouted the same in Albanian after him. There was no reply. Once past the door, the lead soldier called clear to warn us that there was no one in the open planned living room. We all followed. The place had been trashed, all the pictures on the walls, telly, table, it was all just turned over. The whole lot. It genuinely did look like a fight had taken place. With the help of the interpreter, I encouraged the woman to come back into the living room. I asked her, through the interpreter, If there was anyone else in the house, she said there was no one. I kept my commander abreast of the situation through the radio. I asked if she had called the police, of which she said that my commander had done that while we had been in the house and that they wouldn't be long. That's when we heard a crash of something being dropped in the room above us. The woman screamed and ran out and so did the interpreter and if I were completely honest, I pretty much wanted to as well. It was an isolated noise. I radioed my commander to ask if he could see anything from outside of the windows, and he told me that it all looked clear. I decided that myself and one of my larger soldiers go upstairs to investigate. At the landing of the stair, we were presented with three doors. One to the left was a bedroom door, and it was open. In front, a bathroom, and the door again was open, and a closed door to the right. That was where the crash had come from. I shouted in. British soldiers are about to open the door, and once I'd finished the sentence, the banging and throwing sound started. I kept shouting that we would enter, no reply, just the sound of moving. I tried to push the door open, and it felt as if someone was leaning against it. It definitely wasn't locked. Someone was leaning against it. I told the other guy to have a go at the door, but he couldn't open it either. I radioed to commander and asked if he could see anything from the garden. The radio wouldn't connect. Then, without warning, the crashing and moving sounds stopped very suddenly. I shouted again for whomever was in there to come out as we would be going in and reminded them that we were armed. No reply, so I kicked the door in and it opened with literally no force necessary and swung open and rebounded back at me. I went into this bedroom and it was trashed, bed over, clothes out, wardrobe over and it was freezing. The windows were shut and it was mid-August, so quite warm, but this room was freezing. I could see the flashing of blue lights outside the window. I tried the radio to my commander again and it connected. I asked if anyone had come out the window and he told me the windows had been shut all along and that the noises he heard were us doing a search. The police came in the house and shouted for us. We gave our statements as to what we had seen and done. All of this had only taken three to four minutes to happen. I'm not going to bore you with the rest of the four-hour patrol. Needs to say, it was very quick. The section commander and I decided to put that we assisted the police with a domestic argument and a possible break-in on our patrol report. This is all a true account, and it's not something I ever bring up because I know whoever I tell will ask me questions, and I honestly don't have any answers. I've never told my wife, family or friends. The guys in my section, to my knowledge, have never told anyone. This podcast has given me the anonymity to tell this story genially for the first time, so thank you. It's a bit of a weight off my chest. You're very welcome, um, and yeah, no, thank you very much for your story. You know, I'm really humbled that you you shared it with me, and you know, allowed me to read it to everyone else. Um, and and I'm I'm glad it took the weight off your chest. You know, in a way, like that's pretty much what I love about this episode is that it gives people the opportunity to share stories and you know that that it means different things to different people. For some it gives them the opportunity to share uh, maybe a fictional story and for others it gives and, and you know gives them the opportunity to flex their kind of creative writing. For others it it it, it gives them an opportunity to tell a story that is maybe a kind of comedy or, or or you know something that they've always kind of a quirky thing that happened to them that they find interesting. For others it's you know an opportunity to tell their their kind of Family stories, and and in in your case, it's an opportunity to get a weight off off your shoulders. So you know it's it, it's such a great episode, and I love doing it. Um, and and yes, you you're quite welcome. Um, you know f- f- if it's helped, and and absolutely, thank you for your story, and thank you for say choosing to share it with with me. Um, and I I mean I I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's fascinating. It. Rem- Everything sort of reminds me of a story, you know, um, that I've done for Dark Histories. But but that one really reminded me of um, the Lindley Street poltergeist case. I mean, it pretty much reminds me of every poltergeist case that I've done on Dark Histories, actually, now I think about it. But yeah, an interesting story. And and it's definitely one of them things, isn't it, when you experience something like that, it does play on your mind. Um, So I've always had that ghost story that, or, you know, the story that I can't explain, that um, I've told a few times on the on the podcast. I think it was in the very first ever Christmas campfire that I told the full story. And and like now, you know, I'm mid middle aged, and I, I still it still plays on my mind as to what it was because I can't quite put my finger. You know, I can't. I've never been able to completely uh, explain it. Um, and and yeah, so it does it does play on your mind, doesn't it? Unless you know, and it is good to tell people. So yeah, like I say, I'm I'm, I'm glad it helped, and um, and just thank you very much for sharing it. It's a, it was a great story and one that I, I if it, you know, if, I, if I'd have been you, I would have crapped my pants. So our next story is our last story. It comes from Sam, which Sam says happened sometime in his late teens, uh, around about the late 90s. It was dusk. and A friend of I had been walking around on the hills. We descended into the woodlands of Healy Dell, an ancient woodland, now a nature reserve, near Rochdale in Lancashire. As we walked deeper into a remote part of woods, we became aware of a strange atmosphere and a kind of weird mist in the air. It was like stepping into something from a film. Everything seemed to take on the feeling of a surreal stage set. Reality felt fake in some way. This derealization phenomena is something I've experienced during other paranormal events, strange yet familiar and, and indeterminate. Both me and my friend went into a strange, playful mood both exploring the wooded area in a childlike, dreamy, almost intoxicated manner, him going one way, me going the other. I became aware of the sound of voices, like children's voices. They seemed happy and cheeky. I followed the sound, concentrating on it until I came to a stream, and it was then that I realised that the sound of the voices was coming from the stream itself. I listened intently for a moment, entranced by the way the babbling of the water and the distinct sound of playful voices was one and the same, After a short time, I called to my friend, who was some metres away, enthusiastically but in hushed tones, telling him to listen to the river. We both knelt down quietly, paying attention to the sound, but before I had time to ask him what he made of it, we both caught sight of something on the other side of the stream. This part of the story is quite hard to describe. We both silently watched as a group of lights, maybe seven, danced around before us on the other side of the stream. They were animated and seemed strangely intelligent, dancing around and interacting with each other. I had a distinct feeling that they could see us and wanted us to see them. There was a feeling of communication between us. I hesitate to call them fairies. They had no distinct features. They looked like orbs of light and moved in a way reminiscent of a group of animals. The whole atmosphere was dreamlike and surreal. We seemed to be in some sort of trance. We watched in stunned silence for an indeterminate amount of time. Eventually I became unnerved and said that we should leave. I'd half remembered local folk tales of fairies taking people away and I thought it best to get out of there. Although, looking back, there'd seemed nothing malevolent about the encounter and the folk tales that I'd heard never struck me as frightening, or true even. We retreated, made our way up to the bank and out of the tree line and into the fading light of the evening, the strange intoxicating feeling lifted as quickly as it came, and we sat on the hillside, exchanging only a few words in a kind of bewildered shock. As we sat there in that state, a small white feather drifted down beautifully from side to side before our eyes, eventually landing softly on my friend's knee. It so totally absorbed our attention that we were again in a kind of trance or stunned catatonia. Reality seemed somehow fake or like a play of some kind. We related our story to friends the next day, and a group of us went back to the spot, but the atmosphere felt normal and mundane. There was nothing strange at all. It all seemed quite absurd. An enthusiastic friend even brought a camera along. Before and since this experience, I've had many mystical and paranormal experiences, some of which have been utterly life-changing. But this one seems relevant to share, as it's more of a story of place and involves other people. Coincidentally, over the past few years, I've taken to going back to the same spot around Christmas time to recognise the event, a sort of ritual, giving thanks for such a strange, beguiling encounter, whatever it was. And that's my story. It is most true and faithful. Thanks very much. And it's a cracking one to finish on because it's a little bit positive, isn't it? Um, uh, It's an interesting story and it reminds me a bit of taking lsd um, <laughs> um but no you know it really reminded me of um like stories of fairies like you're saying and um, when I, I remember the first time i was reading through your story and before you said fairies i was like man this sounds like some sort of Faywood or something like definitely sounds like something out of dungeons and dragons and some sort of weird kind of fairy experience and then yeah you mentioned the fairies and i was like uh there they are but a great story um and um yeah I have absolutely no explanation because those sorts of stories get very surreal and psychedelic. So, yeah, thank you very much for um, writing in and, and sharing it with us. So thank you very much, everyone, this year for your stories. Up until now, I probably haven't emailed you back to say thank you um, just because I, I like to get the episode done, And uh, but I will get back to each and every one of you um, just to sort of um, just send you an email back. But um, thank you very much for your stories and thank you for sharing them. And thank you for listening and being a part of the Christmas campfire again. And, you know, just making it such a great episode. Thanks everyone, sort of people, everyone who wrote in and everyone who listened and everyone who shared the stories. Um, Yeah, it's just a a great episode and it's definitely my favourite of the year. So thank you very much. Definitely going on the tradition of building year on year so thanks very much for that anyway i'm gonna stop rambling thank you very much for listening i hope you had a great christmas and holiday period happy new year cheers sleep tight